This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Good afternoon. How are you today? Glad you could spend some time here on the Country Hour where we'll be looking at livestock prices in the eastern states which have jumped substantially in recent weeks, mainly because of widespread rain that has improved farmers' confidence. So we'll take a look at that and also take a look closer to home, uh, in particular yesterday's Muche sheep market where numbers were up and the prices were pretty good too. So what is the reason behind that? We'll put that under the microscope just after half past 12 today. Also, shortly, just before news headlines today, you probably have heard in the news that Australia has signed up to the Voluntary Global Methane Pledge to cut emissions by 30% by 2030. So this was all done, signatures signed over in Dubai at this year's COP28. We'll get into that shortly. Six past 12, here on the Country Hour. Well, last night, the federal government passed its nature repair bill after reaching a deal with the Greens. The new laws allow miners, farmers and other landholders to cash in on nature-boosting practices. In return for the Greens' support, the new bill will include a water trigger applied to mining developments and the ability to use biodiversity credits to offset harming the environment are going to be scrapped. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek says it's an exciting opportunity to see more private and philanthropic investment go into nature repair in a way that prevents greenwashing. What we'll have is landholders like traditional owners, farmers, to private landholders more generally, paid to restore and protect nature on their land. And it means that, for example, if you're a farmer and you've got a remnant rainforest on your land, you can get paid for keeping the feral species and the weeds out of it. If you're a traditional owner in central Australia, you're doing cultural burning and reintroducing threatened species uh, into your land, you can get paid to do that work. We are really excited about this as an opportunity to bring additional investment into nature across Australia. Who will monitor this? Uh, It'll be monitored in the same way that uh, Australian carbon credits are. It'll be monitored... It'll have specific methodologies in the same way that a carbon credit does. Uh, Those methodologies will be recommended to me as the minister and the uh, same sort of conditions will apply. Uh, We'll make sure that the methodologies are consistent. The methodology will have, for example, the size of the area that's being protected. It'll have the threatened species that are on that land. The clean energy regulator will regulate in the same way that they do with Australian carbon credit units to make sure that there is consistency, transparency, that the projects can be verified, that they will be tracked and that they will be monitored. Mm. But, I mean, you'd be aware, obviously, of the, the issues with the carbon credit system. You're responsible for water as well. You would have seen what uh, water trading has done to the market and how open that has been uh, to rorting and, and malfunction maybe is a more generous way of putting it. How certain are you that a system like this can work, given that we're talking about very small-scale stuff? 
Well, I, I think this is the benefit of the approach we're taking. There were problems with Australian carbon credit units. That's why we got the Chubb review to do a really good review of methodologies to make sure that people are getting what they pay for when they pay for carbon offsets. We'll take the same integrity approach to this market. And you mentioned the water market. In fact, we're investing millions of dollars to bring integrity to the water market as well, because we don't want cowboys operating in the water market. Everything we've done in the carbon market, the water market, and now the nature market is consistently aimed to make sure that we are avoiding greenwashing. Already, businesses how, how are, you are doing investing that in... Well, because we'll set up methodologies guided by ecologists and scientists you won't be able to get funding unless you're using an approved methodology. The methodologies um, will be publicly available. <clears throat> They'll be tracked. The clean energy regulator will have a database where you'll be able to see openly uh, what sort of projects are going on and what sort of methodologies are being used and uh, who is using them. And if they're not operating well, we'll see the same sort of cleanup opportunities that we saw uh, with the carbon market where we now know, we see that uh, it wasn't being appropriately regulated in the past. We've had the Chubb review and we're putting it onto a firm footing now so that people can have every confidence. Environment Minister Tanya Plebisek speaking to Hamish MacDonald. 10 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Well, WA lobby group WA Farmers is not impressed with the Nature Repair Bill, saying the major trigger for an action on nature repair has been removed. Trevor Whittington is the CEO of WA Farmers. Trevor, what do you make of it? What's your assessment of this bill? Uh, look, they've made two fundamental uh, mistakes. Labor is that desperate to get uh, refugees and, uh, and rapists off the front page of the of the national papers that they capitulated to Labor and agreed to remove offsets as part of the new nature-based trading mechanism and also to link uh, water assessments to fracking, which is going to kill gas exploration in the eastern states. Well, let's take a look at those two areas then. Firstly, the offsets. And uh, Green Senator Sarah Hanson-Young was on the ABC's Insiders on the weekend, and she was saying that the idea of allowing the protection of one part of nature, a particular area of koala habitat, to be saved in order to justify the destruction of nature somewhere else is bonkers. And that's not environmental protection. Does she have a point? Absolutely, she has a point, and that's how the Greens think, you know. But unfortunately, back in the real world, there is trade-offs. You know, we uh, have to clear land uh, to build mines or farms or uh, have property development. And when we're going to import half a million people a year into Australia, we need to have some sort of offset because we are going to impact on the environment. So the best way of managing those offsets or the, is to put in a, a market-based solution. The alternative is you have bureaucrats sitting around a table deciding where the projects to go ahead. And, um, you know, that causes problems. We don't know what's, what's an acceptable level of trade-off. So this is a well-developed system. It's been a lot of discussion. Previous government, industry, agriculture supports a trading-based system, and the Greens have just pulled the rug because they just can't stand profits and they just don't understand markets.
So how would – can you just give us an example of how the offsets would work practically on-farm? Yeah, okay. On-farm, um, and similar to mines or property developers, a farmer wants to remove – 10 hectares of bush because it's in the wrong part of the paddock. It doesn't get nice, long, clear harvesting runs or seeding runs. And it's been half eaten out and half burnt out. But under the clearing rules, you can't. But if you could clear that and get an offset, it could be 10 to 1. So you've got to plant 100 hectares of full native uh, vegetation and a rabbit-proof fence it protect it it's a big enough block that it's you know protected from you know chemical drift and weeds and all the rest of it and you've got an obligation over the next you know 100 years to put a title over that and protect it you get to knock over 10 hectares now the greens couldn't stand that but you would essentially go to the market and buy your uh, certificate of uh, nature credits and you could buy one trade off one for 10, 10 to 1 and away you go. Or you do it with your neighbour or someone else does it, doesn't matter. But it's a incentive for you to plant trees or it's a price you can pay to clear land. So that's been removed, that option? That, that, that trading mechanism has been removed. So now there'll be a market set up, like there is a carbon market that's been established and there will be some magical person who will come along with a billion dollars and he will gift that money to people who want to rabbit-proof fence off their 10 hectares of farmland. So the, the problem we've got is there'll be plenty of people happy to take money, 10 grand a, you know, a kilometre, to put rabbit-proof fencing up around their bush, but who's going to write the cheque? Um, before it would have been people clearing land, now it's these magical billionaire benefactors who are just going to give money. Well, Tony Plibersek said that this opens wonderful opportunities up and it um, completely gets rid of greenwashing because these are people coming in with money, uh, private investors, whoever they are, magical people, as you say, Trevor, who come in. Uh, do you agree right. that it removes that greenwashing side of things? It, it would, it, look, it will remove the greenwashing as such, which is people buy car- carbon credits out of you know Russia or you know, some part of Africa where there's no governance. It's much better to do that here. They'll actually use the existing carbon trading uh, system, ACUS, and so all that legislation's there. It's actually working. The clean energy regulator will oversee it. So the whole structure's there. It's ready to go. The Greens have just pulled the key bit that would make it workable. The offsets. The offsets. So, we need the offsets. So what, what's going to happen then? Does anything change in terms oh, of nothing. actually no, <laughs> investing no, in nature? Well, the government will claim credit and go to the next election saying they've done something and nothing will happen. It'll be like what we went through for 12, 13 years with you know, the failed rudd exercise. So once the Greens get involved with trying to steer government, it doesn't work. So nothing will happen. We'll stagger around until you know, the coalition can come in and fix it up. <laughs> That's got you well and truly got your political hat on this afternoon, I, Trevor. <laughs> well, you know, I don't mind which side fixes it up, but, you know, we've been through this with Labor before. So it's not matter me wearing my political hat. It's just a, you know, it's a reality. Uh, Labor believes in mythical billionaires writing checks for Australia. I believe it'll be, you know, you're more likely at BHP and Chevron and 
And, you know, Billy Bob the farmer who wants to knock over 10 hectares and is prepared to pay, you know, you know it might cost him a, a, a um, you know, $300,000 to buy the uh, nature-based credits to be able to do it. And then he can go and, in turn, he will have to plant $300,000 worth of trees on another, on a 100 hectares, as an example. So... Uh, Trevor Whittington with us this afternoon, CEO of the WA Farmers. Trevor, the other change, and you mentioned it earlier, was a, a tightening of these water triggers, mainly applied to mining developments. What impact is that likely to have under this new nature repair bill? No, it's the Greens with their you know, loathing of fracking, this mad hatred of drilling holes to extract gas, which we've got lots of. If the Greens were realistic, you can't shut down coal and then go to renewables without a source of firming energy, which is gas, which you can turn on quickly. Uh, we've run out of domestic gas because we're madly exporting it all. And uh, Eastern States has got uh, just put these restrictions on, um, have limited the amount of onshore fracking. The Greens have now locked that in, saying, oh, if you impact any water, of course, fracking does have some impact on water then you can't go ahead with your fracking. So Australia's, they're just basically cutting Australia's throat economically because we need we need that gas exploration. Well, the eastern states certainly does because they're going to run out. They've got a problem. And the other big news this week is that Australia has signed up to the voluntary global methane pledge to cut emissions by 30% by 2030. This coming out of Dubai with the big COP28 uh, conference on what do you make of that? Is that a good move for Australia to sign up? Oh, they love signing these things um, without actually explaining what the costs are. Look, the problem with methane is the biggest emitters of methane is agriculture with our livestock, and there is no simple solution other than you know, hand-feeding cattle wandering around pastoral stations with uh, seaweed, or which we keep getting promised, but you know it doesn't add up. So the only way we're going to be able to reduce our methane emissions for livestock is to reduce the number of livestock. How do you do that? Well, New Zealand and uh, the Netherlands uh, tried it. We put a, carb, a, a methane tax on livestock and caps and you drive down the number of livestock. This is a disaster waiting to happen because someone is going to have to pay and it's going to be... Uh, livestock producers in Australia. We don't know how, we don't know when, but it's going to happen before 2030 if they're actually going to lock this in. Right, so you think that's where Australia's heading, a tax on a methane tax, basically, for there, livestock there is, producers? There, yeah, there's no way we're going to... Australia's going to meet its emissions reductions around agriculture without coercing farmers into changing land use behaviour or livestock, you know. So they're either going to force us to buy all Euro 6 tractors or go to biodiesel or to use green urea and fertilisers or to stop planting crops and just plant legumes or to get rid of livestock. We just can't reach the emissions reductions that we've now legislated without some sort of coercion that means tax no one's talking about it but we know they're thinking about it and because mostly the conservative seats out in the bush that don't vote for labor we're in the firing line problem labor's got it's only hanging on by three seats election in 18 months so they're sitting they're paralyzed what are we going to do 
So they go off to COP, sign another global agreement, but this is going to come home to roost and farmers need to wake up. We've got a problem. Trevor, good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. CEO of WA Farmers, Trevor Whittington. What do you make of that? Do you think Trevor's onto something there that with Australia signing this voluntary global methane pledge at COP28 in Dubai this week, does that really mean that we're heading for a methane tax on livestock here in Australia? As Trevor said, that's the only way to uh, reach those methane emission targets, reduce those uh, emissions with a tax on livestock and therefore driving down the number of livestock in this country. What do you make of that? Let me know on text 0448 922604. 21 past 12. Well, Trevor Whittington, clearly not a fan of the removal of offsets and the expanded water trigger in the nature repair bill that passed through Parliament House in Canberra last night, but others are rather keen on it. Kirsty Howie from the Environment Centre NT, says it's a welcome and significant change. She says the water trigger was first promised over five years ago following the PEPA inquiry into hydraulic fracturing. And what it does is it'll create an additional approval, an additional scrutiny under federal environmental law, the Environment Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act, of the impact of fracking on water resources. And the reason that's so important is because at the moment there is no federal scrutiny of the impact of fracking on on water resources and there have been a raft of decisions made in the Northern Territory which have been heavily scrutinised by organisations like ours but also the public that mean it will just create that additional safeguard and additional scrutiny from an independent scientific committee and ultimately the Environment Minister herself. Right, so can you give us, I guess, an example? We've got a company like Tamboran working in the Beedaloo Basin doing fracking. What does this change mean to a company like that? Well, it will be quite a big change for Tamboran in the sense that um, that company would need to apply for Northern Territory approvals through the usual course, and that's under the Petroleum Regulations or the Local Environment Protection Act. But they will also need to apply for an approval from the Federal Environment Minister. So that will be a separate application. In some ways, it's similar to what a lot of companies have to do now anyway, if there are impacts on threatened species, for instance. But it will specifically address water. And is it correct that companies that deal in coal seam gas have already been operating under this type of legislation? That's exactly right. Yeah, so in, right. in states and territory, well, states like New South Wales and in Queensland, uh, this already applies to coal seam gas, but also to coal mining itself. And it means that you get a proper cumulative impact assessment of the impacts of these kinds of industries that takes into account the impacts on other industries as well, like farming, like pastoralism, and you know the effects on communities as well. One of the other last-minute changes, for lack of a better term, to this nature repair bill is getting rid of biodiversity offsets. What's your thoughts on this being a good move or not? I think we, on the whole, welcome this move. And I I have to scrutinise the detail of what's been, what what the deal is, um, you know, before passing too much judgement on it. But one of the key criticisms was 
that while this nature repair market uh, might be viewed as a good thing and a, and a good thing for landholders in particular, it shouldn't be mixed up with the offsets market, which has been under a lot of scrutiny federally and also at a state and territory level, um, you know, around the country and should be dealt with entirely separately and differently from this new nature repair market. And I think that sort of stands up. That's, that's a good mm. decision, but the devil will be in the detail. And, you know, we're all waiting to see that, I think. My understanding is it stops someone buying credits because a few trees were planted in Tasmania to warrant wiping out hundreds of thousands of hectares in the north. Is that your understanding? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, this is a key principle of offsetting is that, you know, there should be like for like if you, there is damage done to biodiversity or nature in one area from bulldozing trees, for instance, then, you know, you shouldn't be able to compensate it with something that bears no resemblance <laughs> to the impact uh, and the damage that's been done. And that's the kind of thing that needs to be stopped. Um, and if this bill goes some way towards uh, stopping that from happening, then I think we need to welcome it. Kirsty Howie from the Environment Centre NT with Matt Brown. Uh, Bran, I should say. 26 past 12 here on the Country Hour. Earlier you heard from Trevor Whittington, the CEO of WA Farmers, and talking about the nature repair bill that was signed off at Parliament House in Canberra last night. He's not happy with it. He's got a few concerns around it. But Tony in... Is it Bustleton, I think? Uh, Trevor's just made me think of voting Greens at the next election. Let me know your thoughts, 0448 922 604, 26 past 12. Well, Australian green technology company Sea Forest says Australia's decision to sign up to the voluntary global methane pledge to cut emissions by 30% by 2030 is a great step forward. Sam Elsom is the CEO of Sea Forest, which is developing a feed supplement using a red seaweed native to Australia that can slash the methane emissions of cows and sheep. He's in Dubai this week for COP28, an annual meeting where the member states of the United Nations get together to talk about the progress in dealing with global warming. Sam Elsom says he's encouraged by what he's seen and heard at this year's event. I think one of the, the early signals that we're putting methane in the spotlight came at COP27. Is that COP27 in Glasgow? 26. 26, um, when we had Biden introduce the methane pledge. So the methane pledge shone a light on methane. We started to talk about why it was important in our atmosphere, but it was, you know, 122 countries getting around saying it's, you know, aspirational goal of reducing 30% emissions by 2030. So there's nothing hard around it. You know, what we've seen at this COP in the very early days, which is quite exciting, is that we've now, we're now seeing countries signing up to saying, and we're actually going to, you know, put in place the policy settings to reduce them. And we're not excluding agriculture, we're including agriculture, so all sources of those emissions. And I think that's an important next step. You know, we do understand, and it's a frustration why that these things do take a lot longer than we'd expect because 2030 is around the corner. But it's also exciting because um, the recognition means that uh, the science that's coming out of Australia and the work that we're doing can contribute. So I'm, I'm happy that we're leaning into the challenge and the opportunity. Now, America, for example, says it wants to reduce its methane emissions 80% by 2030, and it wants to stop emissions from leaky oil and gas wells 
Is that feasible, do you think? I think that a lot of these challenge, climate challenges are complicated. But I, I, I do know that the, the coal, oil and gas exploration is the second most abundant you know, source of, of these emissions. But livestock and agriculture, we have solutions that are in, you know, available now and that, that, and that can be you know, available globally. So I'd like to see us, us get behind, uh, behind that. And obviously, you know, the work that we're doing at CFRSA can contribute to that outcome. You know, where can we get to realistically? Uh, it's, tough, it's tough to say. But I certainly know that you know, with, with the, the level of abatement and the science that I've seen behind you know, feed supplements, and not just the work we're doing, but there are other companies as well, um, we can contribute significantly. And just, you know, sort of rounding it out, I mean, you're here at COP. What are you here for and how's it going? So uh, I'm only on day two um, and, you know, it's, it's a bit to get your head around. It's an enormous event, and, um, but it's an exciting opportunity for us because we're here in the same time zone, in the same location as, you know, ministers for the, the environment and agriculture from around the world. We're able to meet with, um, you know, major supply chain participants and, you know, the work that we do does require, you know, the supply chain transformation and the introduction and education to livestock producers all the way through to consumers um, so these conversations are important and it's a, an in place where for us we get to, to have those conversations but also you know contribute to the, the overall narrative. So what's your idea of success at the end of this? Well it's a, certainly the uh, I mean forming coalitions and partnerships not just beyond Australia so in, in new regions is, part, is success for us for sure. We have had work happening, in, research in the UK, um, and we have research happening in other parts of the world. So, except taking that from research to commercialisation in new countries, and, and I, I guess taking extra, exciting Australian science and turning it into a global solution is, is success for Sea Forest in time. Sam Elsom, he's the CEO of Sea Forest, and he was talking to uh, Daniel Mercer at the COP28 in Dubai this week. It's 29 to 1. Jonathan Hopper is here with the headlines. Good afternoon, Belinda. The federal government has agreed to extend the GST a no-worse-off guarantee by three years following a meeting of National Cabinet. States and territories have been lobbying for the guarantee to be made permanent. It was due to expire in 2027. Leaders have also agreed to implement a national firearms register to be operational within four years. The Morrower Shire president says her community will suffer as a result of being included on a list of 25 towns targeted for stronger liquor restrictions. The Deputy Police Commissioner is proposing tougher restrictions in some regional centres experiencing high rates of alcohol-fuelled crime and violence. Broome, Caratha, Laverton and Derby are among those named in the proposals. And WA Cricket Association CEO Christina Matthews has resigned after 12 years in the role. Matthews took the reins in 2011 and has overseen enormous on-field success, culminating in the men's program delivering back-to-back a Sheffield Shield, One Day Cup and Big Bash titles. Thanks, Belinda. Thank you for the update, Jonathan. 28 to 1. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Great to have you along this afternoon. And on the text, this from Tim in Wagen, I've just returned from the Catanning sheep sale. Only three quarters of the bidders were there. Mutton selling from 50 cents. One line was passed in. The Meat and Livestock Australia report is not accurate. Light mutton selling for $2 a head. 
The sheep market continues in free fall in WA, says Tim in Wagen. Thank you for that, Tim. And we will get a wrap on the Catanning sheep market just before the news at one o'clock. And also just shortly catching up with livestock agent Craig Walker just to look at the situation at the Muche sheep market yesterday because apparently numbers were up. Uh, the quality was pretty good and some of the prices were pretty good too. But Craig will run a ruler over that for you very shortly. This too on the methane discussion we were having earlier, this from... John at Wickerpen. My question is, if we pay a methane tax today, in 12 years' time when that methane naturally breaks down and no longer exists, do we get a rebate? Thank you for that, John. The text is 0448 922604. Off to the Bureau of Meteorology now. Luke Huntington, how's it looking around the Southwest Land Division this afternoon? Yeah, afternoon, Belinda. Um, we are seeing uh, some thunderstorms at the moment. Um, they're sort of over the northeastern parts of the wheat belt. Um, they're not producing that much rain at all, uh, if any. Um, we are expecting some further thunderstorms uh, this afternoon, but again, it's not going to be um, too much rainfall inducing with those. So could be even dry thunderstorms um, throughout the, um, the northern and the eastern parts of the wheat belt uh, this afternoon. Um, and then heading into tomorrow, uh, we will see another area of showers and thunderstorms. Um, again, through uh, most of the wheat belt and the Great Southern. So over the wheat belt area, any thunderstorms most likely going to be during the afternoon period and about uh, east of Cundedon or so, um, west of there um, should be remaining clear. Um, but with those thunderstorms tomorrow afternoon, still not expecting too much rainfall, um, maybe up to around four millimetres uh, at the most. And there could even be a risk of those thunderstorms being uh, dry as well. Um, Looks like the uh, the greatest chance of getting any rainfall will probably be more likely over the southeast coastal district uh, tomorrow, um, with uh, some showers and thunderstorms moving through that area. Um, we're looking at probably around two to eight millimetres through that area, uh, even if you don't get a thunderstorm. Um, but if you do get some thunderstorms going through, you may even get upwards sort of around fifteen to twenty millimetres uh, in isolated areas um, through that southeast coastal district district uh, tomorrow, uh, but that would have to be sort of um, constant thunderstorms or showers moving over the same area over a prolonged period of time to get those um, upwards of those 20 millimetres. Um, and then heading into Friday, we do see a new ridge coming in. So those showers and thunderstorms over the southeast coastal district will clear pretty early during the morning and certainly out of the wheat belt and the great southern area. By the afternoon, um, we'll probably be expecting uh, no precipitation at all through the great uh, through the southwest land division. Um, and then by Saturday, certainly we'll uh, not, not expecting any precipitation at all just as that ridge develops to the south. And we'll see quite a sur good surge of easterly, southeasterly winds go through that region. So that'll uh, dry everything out. Um, and with a lack of um, precipitation. And then moving into northern and eastern parts, it has been really hot in some parts in the north of the state, really high minimum and maximum temperatures. Does that continue, Luke? 
It does um, through most of this week. So, um, yeah, as you said, pretty high temperatures throughout the region. So low to mid 40s um, through a lot of the um, northern central parts of the state um, and minimums getting down to you know, 26, 27 overnight, creating those heat wave conditions. Um, but uh, as I said, that later in the week as that southeasterly surge comes through, that'll push right through uh, central and northern parts of the state uh, by the weekend. So that'll bring a lot of cooler air out. Uh, and some drier air, so that'll allow uh, the, the minimum temperatures to reduce and certainly the maximum temperatures to drop uh, back to sort of the low to mid-30s um, through much of the Pilbara and the interior region. Um, even even in the southern interior, the temperatures are going to be dropping back to sort of to the mid-20s, so that's going to be sort of unseasonably cool uh, for this time of year through that area. Um, but in terms of any uh, rainfall, we're still looking at uh, the usual seasonal showers and thunderstorms uh, through the Pilbara, uh, the eastern Pilbara, the Kimberley, the interior region um, and the goldfields uh, today. And heading into tomorrow, a very similar area, uh, the goldfields, uh, the eastern Pilbara, Kimberley, Euclid interior region, eastern Gascoigne are at risk of getting a thunderstorm tomorrow. Um, yeah, a, a lot of those thunderstorms should have a little bit of rainfall with them. So um, over the gold fields, you're looking at sort of one to five millimetres isolated up to 10, with most of the rain happening um, through the Kimberley region. And then, as I said, on Friday, um, that ridge coming in will clear everything out of the out, out of the Euclid gold fields quite early in the morning, and all the thunderstorms will be confined to the Kimberley, eastern Pilbara and into the interior region. Region. And then over the weekend, uh, we're only ex expecting those thunderstorms to be uh, mainly confined to the uh, Pilbara region, um, into the northern interior and into the Kimberley region, while on Sunday, uh, those thunderstorms should contract well north into the, into the Kimberley region. And then warnings this afternoon, what have you got? Yeah, um, not too many warnings out. We do have that uh, heat wave warning out. So uh, we do have extreme uh, heat wave continuing for the Kimberley district. Um, and then other areas under the severe heat wave are Pilbara, Gascoigne, Goldfields, North Interior and South Interior. And we also just have a uh, wind warning out as well. Luke, thank you for those details. Appreciate it. 22 to 1. Checking the rainfall figures now. So we'll look back over the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning and checking five mils and over. Starting in northern and eastern forecast districts in the Kimberley, Kachana had 20, Leopold Downs 11, Yambu 7, and in the Eucala Air 9, and no rain to report in the southwest land division. 21 to 1 here on the Country Hour on the ABC right across Western Australia and on the ABC Listen app. Well, almost 8,200 sheep and lambs were on offer at the Katanning Sheep Market today. And Tracy Kilner will go through the yarding and the prices for you just before the news at one. But let's just take a moment to reflect on yesterday's Mushay Sheep Market, which was quite a big one, with just over 9,000 sheep and lambs yarded for sale up 3,700 on last week. Nutrient Livestock Agent Craig Walker was at the sale yesterday at Mouchet and he said the prices are a reflection of the quality and one reason the numbers were so high was because a few producers are getting out of the industry. This week, listen, there was a big dispersal of dorpers that mainly came down out of the north with some people who are getting out of sheep and actually one family in particular are 
uh, relocating back to South Africa. So they um, they are no longer in uh, breeding sheep. So there was a larger number that were uh, presented for sale today, which sort of had a bit of a knock-on effect right through the whole market. We sort of had a number of um, dispersals that have been put through Mirche with, uh, with our agency as well as a few others, and that sort of had these numbers in Mirche sort of having a few uh, ups and downs over the last eight weeks. How did the market handle the extra sheep? The market sort of it didn't it didn't falter at all, really, to be honest. If we have a look at the lamb market at the moment, like the heavy lambs today sold extremely well in Musha and, and we did see rates that were over $5 a kilo for heavyweights. But bearing in mind that the heavyweight lambs over 25 kilos, it wouldn't have been 200 in the whole yarding. And when you consider that there is a number of smaller independent butchers that operate out of out of Musha and buy those lambs, um, they do need those lambs. And so then with the advent of lambs in the south that aren't coming up to weight, there was a few other butchers that were active trying to chase those. So the market in that aspect, that was uh, that was very strong. Trade lambs still hold, held very well. Their values were, were strong as against last week. Um, the huge uh, breeding ewes, like the, the lot of really good Dorper ewes, you know, sort of 35 to the younger ones up to $50, that was pretty consistent. That was pushed by, uh, we had an order from the eastern states who bought those ewes, um, bearing in mind they have a, a $40 freight component to get them back home. But So we had that, but the, the ewe market didn't jump or get any stronger, but it maintained the values from previous sales. With uh, those processes chasing the heavier weights, is there a big price difference based on quality at the moment? Yeah, there is. Um, Basically, the heavyweight lambs are genuinely heavyweights and and the ones that have been coming through and some of the Dorper lambs that have been presented for sale are selling extremely well because they're they're yielding where they're meant to be yielding and they come off grain as well as some of the Sean heavyweight uh, crossbred lambs. But the market is in Musha. We we still have probably about four or five smaller uh, independent butchers who are based out of Perth who don't buy direct off farmers. They do buy and rely on the sale yard system to procure their, their numbers and that keeps it very strong as well as we do have our major competitors that are in there like the hillsides of Beaufort Rivers, uh, Ross Waddell with his um, meat machine as well as West Coast Meat Supplies and as well as a few feeders behind the background as well. But um, And even today we did see Walsh were active in the market on lambs. So it all depends on what's happening around the place. But if we see the market in the south, you know, there are a lot of lambs down there aren't uh, grading and don't have the weight in. So that's sort of forcing a few of the processes back into the auction system, which is, which is really good to see. A month or so ago, the market was really very miserable. Still not great, but how would you define it now? It's all quality driven, to be perfectly honest. If the quality of the lambs are heavy and they've got uh, and all their stores and they've got a bit of condition on and they're ideal for backgrounding, the market's still pretty strong and it has been reasonably buoyant in that category. Where you do run into some of the issues is where they are very light, very immature and, and really need a lot of love and TLC, so meaning that the, you're going to have to hold those sheep through to about May or June to get rid of them. And that's where people are really, you know, they don't have the fortitude to go through and feed those sheep for that length of time and it doesn't matter if it's a merino ewe or if it's a if it's a lamb or it's a hogget and we, we are seeing that those inferior sheep are really hard to sell and there is very limited buyer activity on them but we will we are seeing the better quality sheep and it doesn't matter if it's sheep or cattle we are seeing the better quality but the well-bred the good genetics uh, they are selling fairly well and they have been for a while. 
And do you expect that to continue? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I think that it, it will continue. The right article at the right time will always sell. As I said, going back, you know, the issue is is that people have got to do some mathematics and, and weigh it up. And they're also um, very, um, a lot of farmers are very diligent on their management of their land and they don't want to see it blow. So they want to make sure that the, they've got the stock on there for a shorter period of time and they, they're not overstocking the place. So they're looking at the opportunity with those lighter ones. But again, it depends on whether or not you look at a glass half full or half empty. To me, sheep at 3 and $4, which we have seen in the sale yard, those sort of sheep, if you do feed them for a while and you take them up to a store condition and you sell them for 40 the gap between the 40 and the $3, even with the feed, is still very similar to the profit on buying lambs at $80 and sell them for 130 So, you know, a profit to profit doesn't matter where you come in on the scale of things. So I still see good opportunity in those lightweight sheep coming through. It's just how you look at it, whether or not you want to be at the top end or you're happy to deal at the bottom end and try and get those sheep up. So... It's really up to how you see your business and your mindset at the time. Midwest Nutrient Livestock Agent Craig Walker talking about the big sheep sale at Muche yesterday with Lucinda Joyce. Quarter to one here on the Country Hour. And livestock prices in the eastern states have jumped substantially in recent weeks, mainly because widespread rain has improved farmers' confidence. There was a 64% rise in the eastern young cattle indicator and a 76% jump in the restocker lamb indicator. Matt Tinkler is an elders livestock manager for Victoria and the Riverina. He says things have changed because demand is now outstripping supply. Certainly some positive weather or favourable weather conditions in the north have had a, a positive impact on probably both sheep and cattle prices. In particular, you know, we've seen the cattle market uh, right across the board from processing processing cattle through to restock of cattle probably an increase over the last month or so of up to um, up to three hundred dollars a head so that's uh, that's been quite significant and, and then probably on the back of that we've seen the trend follow through the through the mutton price although that has maybe just stabilized um, and contracted a little bit in the last week or so but um, from where it might have been a week or ten days ago but and then good quality lambs are, are certainly selling very well as, as well. So it's um, yeah, it's all very positive. I guess we we were aware that it could possibly happen, given the kill space taking place and, and the season. Um, it was just a case of, as the old saying goes, the supply and demand. And um, I think the demand's probably outweighed the supply at the moment. And those restockers jumping right back in after being pretty absent for, for quite a while. Yeah, absolutely. And that's really on the back of Angus. That's on the back of a bit of confidence out the other end. So, you know, we've been right for the last six or eight, nearly 12 months. It's kill space has been at a premium um, and it's been hard to get stock through that cycle, you know, or into feedlots or or whichever process. So we've certainly seen that that top end change and that's given the, the restocker on the back of the seasonal conditions a bit of confidence and uh, to step in and yeah, I guess everyone's, as we approach 2024, everyone's got a positive outlook. And all all sectors connected, aren't they? Because if you talk lambs, for example, as you said, big, big rises in lamb prices, give, giving people confidence to produce more lambs and, and hence look at uh, buying in more ewes. Yeah, correct. Look, right across the board, the, that breeding element and then from a restocking point of view, people to take on maybe some of those lighter lambs out of the areas that haven't been able to finish them. 
and produce them. And, you know, we're right at that time of year where we start to see harvest take place. So paddock space and room becomes available for people to take them on. We've certainly seen from a dollar a head point of view, we've certainly see that a lot more attractive. You can get a lot more units compared to maybe what you were able to get 12 or 18 or two years ago. So all those factors sort of combine and, and create just that positivity and people to say, yeah, it is an opportunity and let's make a bit of money over the summer. And at, at the bottom of the market, or two or three months ago, we, we spoke around then, you talked about great opportunities to buy in, in cheap livestock. And I guess for, for those people who did, probably a, a, a bold call, but fortune uh, favouring the brave. Yeah, look, agriculture's made up of cycles, isn't it, Angus? And uh, and we certainly, you know, we continually see cycles. And those people that have lived and eaten and breathed it and positioned themselves can capitalise on those cycles. And that, that's really what we've been through. And that's, and that's what we've seen. We've seen it before and we'll see it again, no doubt. Matt Tinkler, Elders Livestock Manager for Victoria and the Riverina, speaking to Angus Verley, 11 to 1. And on the text, Phil says, things must be bad when farmers are moving back to South Africa. Thank you for that, Phil. That refers back to what Craig Walker from Nutrien, the livestock agent with Nutrien, was saying just a moment ago, that there was a, a farmer, a producer at the Muche sheep sale yesterday, getting rid of a lot of sheep and getting out of the industry and deciding to move back to South Africa. The text zero double four eight nine double two six zero four eleven to one. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varaschetti on ABC Local Radio WA. The inaugural TikTok Awards are being held in Sydney tonight, which, according to organisers, will bring together popular creators, the biggest viral trends, and the most talked about moments from twenty twenty three. So why are we talking about it here this afternoon on the Country Hour? Well, one of the nominees for Creator of the Year is Tom Forrest, a.k.a. Outback Tom, whose videos of cooking up food with his granddad in the Kimberley have reached millions of people worldwide. Hey, Granddad, can you start me a fire? Yeah, no worries. Rightio, so today we're making bean tacos. Mmm, unbelievable. Far out, that is absolutely delicious. So easy. Wow. That is seriously 10 out of 10. I'm not even joking. That is one of the best Outback meals we've cooked. Okay, so if you're in Sydney looking for breakfast and you've ordered one of these, what sort of money are you looking at? Look, I'm going to be honest, I reckon a cafe in Sydney would want something like $29 for this. Well, now let me tell you about Tom's granddad, Steve Forrest. Prior to going viral on TikTok and being nominated for social media awards, Steve Forrest spent nearly 30 years working at the remote Wyndham Port in the Kimberley. So how did the adventures of Outback Tom and Grandad start? Well, um, Tom, Tom sort of branched off into journalism. He worked in the in Warringarry radio station for a while in uh, Kununurra and then got a job with ABC and he was based in Broome and then went to Sydney and he wanted to do a, a cooking show. So we sort of wrote up a few things, but cooking shows were done to death. And, uh, of course, he couldn't get it run on TV, but he had a TikTok account. And um, when he come back to uh, Wyndham, we started just doing TikTok um, cooking, just (laughs) 
you know, not too serious and um, a bit tongue-in-cheek sort of cooking. And uh, well, I think after the first three videos, we did a kangaroo tail one or something like that that got three and a half million views in a short period of time and we're up and running. <laughs> Can you remember what that was like, re- realising that the numbers were just going into the millions for something that you did out the back of Wyndham? It was was something brand new. I got left behind in the technological age, but I've kind of caught up a bit now. But it was kind of really exciting, you know. You'd open TikTok every day to see, you know, see how the numbers had gone up and what the comments were. And, and we, you know, we were getting positive comments on all our stuff. And then uh, the Americans were would overlay it, you know. There'd be an American TikTok reviewing our thing. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was pretty exciting, you know. And but now we're Instagram, YouTube, um, Facebook. We're, you know, it's the whole spectrum. And now you're in Sydney today. The TikTok Awards are on tonight. Uh, what's that like? What's that like as a feeling? Well, well, I'm as nervous as all shit because I, I didn't realise, but until I got here, but. We have to do a, a live, a live show. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's about I don't know. There's five or six creators that are doing live shows, and we happen to be doing one. And what we're doing is a stock whip thing. You know, I've always had a stock whip. Or, you know, grew up on a farm, so always had a stock whip. So the grandkids could crack stock whips and that. But we're not really gun stock whip people, and <laughs> we just have happened to do a video out on the marsh where Tom cracked a prawn out of my hand and put a cigarette out and a few things like that. And that, you know, that got 150,000 views or something. And someone wrote in and said, do your loudest crack? And so we went up and got the audio right with a bastion in the background. So we've got an echo. And um, Tom did four cracks. And within two days, that had two million views and heaps and heaps of comments. And... um, so what we're going to do tonight is probably, because we're a light-hearted show, it doesn't matter if we stuff it up anyway, but um, we're just not sock whip people. We're, we can crack a whip, but um, we're doing a stock whip uh, show at the TikTok Awards tonight. There'd be a few other granddads there tonight. You know, it's that kind of crowd, is it? Um, <laughs> I think. There's very few granddads. <laughs> <laughs> I might be the only granddad, but there's, there's going to be thousands of people there. And I mean, I moved to Wyndham in 1972, and there's some reason I stayed in Wyndham, and I think it's because you get a lot of personal space and not too, but Sydney is just constant noise. You can't see the skyline for buildings. <laughs> and... Um, and the noise, the noise is just going 24 hours of the day, and uh, I'll be actually pleased to get back to Wyndham. I mean, I'm pleased to be in Sydney, but there's no way I'm going to move down here. Uh, getting to work with your grandson, travelling around, having fun, is that better than working at the Wyndham Port? Oh, it's it's different, but the Wyndham Port was good, you know. Every industry had its own own character, or own personality, and the the one that really got me was the, the live cattle industry. You know, there were so many characters and people, you know, I mean, not just quick ones that come to mind as, you know, David Heath, Sterling Buntine, David O'Hare. Um, there's just loads and loads of people that were really interesting to work with, very good at their job, 
and uh, that entertained me no end, the live cattle industry. Steve Ellison, they oh, they go right back for years and mm. years. It's just loads and Angus Adam. There's just heaps and heaps of them that were really interesting characters, and I really enjoyed working with them. I'm not sure if all those people you just rattled off are on TikTok to cheer you on tonight, but wishing you and Tom all the best. Good luck, hey? All right. Thanks very much. I just about guarantee none of them are on TikTok. <laughs> Steve Forrest speaking to Matt Brown about how he and his grandson Tom uh, got into making videos for TikTok. If you want to check them out, just go and search for Outback Tom. Three minutes to one. The market's next. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Federal Parliament to debate new legislation on immigration detention. Can the government secure changes before the end of the parliamentary year? Global climate talks in Dubai tackle the issue of methane emissions. And beetle mania. Are Christmas beetles back? The tiny creatures that signal the festive season in many parts of eastern Australia. Those stories and more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. It was a relatively large sheep sale at the Catanning Sale Yards this morning. Numbers up about 2,400 on last week. Tracy Kilner, can you run through the prices? Hi, Belinda. Numbers were up for a total yarding of 8,188 mixed quality sheep and lambs. Processes were selective with most categories trending down with demand. The top lambs made $125 while restockers paid up to $40 for merino ewes. Plain small frame sheep sold as low as a dollar a head with very plain lines failing to attract a bid. Lightweight lambs under 16 kilos carcass weight sold to $68. Weights under 18 kilos carcass weight made 65 to $90, trade weights returned 90 to 103 and heavyweight lambs sold to $125 a head. Store ewes made from $1 up to $27 to restockers, medium weights sold from $20 to $40 to restockers and heavyweights over 30 kilos carcass weight sold from $30 to $35 a head. Medium and heavyweight weathers made 25 to $27. Ram lambs sold from $80 to $110 and mature rams made from $2 up to $36 for the younger aged merino rams. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for going through those details this afternoon. A minute and a half away from the news at one. And the shires of Del Wallanew and Gingin, just north of Perth, have just been awarded some funding for water projects. The Shire of Del Wallanew gets just over $137,000 for two projects to help stormwater collection at its Roberts Road Dam and the Kalani Town Dam. That water will help irrigate the town's oval as well as being ready for emergency situations for livestock and firefighting. And then the Shire of Jinjin has been awarded $9,000 to fund the installation of an automated standpipe monitoring system on the Honeycomb standpipe. State Water Minister Simone McGurk says the funding comes from the Community Water Supplies Partnership Program, which tries to provide regional communities with the resources to future-proof their water security. And a couple of texts in response to the conversations today from Ben. Animal agriculture is the fall guy for the global fossil fuels industry lobbyists. 
animal methane life cycles in about 12 years. CO2 from fossil fuels takes about 1,000 years. Money speaks loudest. Go figure, says Ben. Thank you for that. Good to talk to you. Time for the news, 1 o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.